Welcome back to 21 Steps, an audiobook podcast by M.A. Box. Chapter 3. The rain had subsided, but the smell of humidity in the air still remained. The sun was coming up over the mountains, and Derek thought to himself how strange it was to see the sun when he hadn't yet slept. His parents had arrived around four in the morning and had helped to put the children to bed. They planned to get a hotel today to keep the kids and let them swim. Derek thought that would be best until he could get their house back in order. The officers throughout the house had made such a mess. He assumed the carpet would have to be replaced due to the big muddy boots, and he didn't know how he would ever get the black dust off of the mirrors and all of the doorknobs that they had used to try to find fingerprints, just in case. That alone would have been enough, but the officers had also made a mess of the rest of the house, too. I guess that is what happens when you get so many people into such a small space. Pictures had been tipped onto the floor and the entire bathroom had been torn apart as if they were looking for something. Derek turned and told his parents that he would meet them at the hotel. He moved down the front steps and saw a red fire hydrant sprinkler still attached to a green hose in the middle of the lawn. It reminded him how just two days ago he and his wife had been playing with their two boys in the front lawn, letting them run through the sprinklers. They laughed so much. He was so proud of the way his boys were growing up. His wife had made peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for them for lunch, and they had all eaten on the front porch feeding chips to the ants. It was amazing how things could change in only a day. His whole world, he felt, was flipped upside down. He walked to the station wagon that was parked in the driveway and got into the driver's seat. The car struggled to start, but he finally got it going and reversed out of the driveway. He was going to the police station where he was going to give a timeline of events to the detective that had come to the house last night. A routine interview, the detective had said. Derek was still nervous and he felt the sweat begin to prickle on his brow. He pulled into the parking lot of the police station and sat quietly for a minute. He turned off the car, took a deep breath, and opened the door. He put both feet out of the door, onto the hot pavement, and stood up, closing the door behind him. It was quiet outside, and he could hear only the birds chirping in the trees as he walked into the station. A young woman sat at the front desk in a uniform. She looked up at Derek and grumpily asked, "'Can I help you?' through the plexiglass window between them. Derek said, "'I am here to see Detective Parker,' not feeling as if that was adequate for the situation he continued. "'He is expecting me.' She left to go and find Detective Parker, and all Derek could do was focus on breathing and trying not to cry." Detective Parker came to the front and opened the door with a beep for Derek to come back. The detective had obviously not slept either and was wearing what appeared to be the same blue shirt and red tie. Derek followed the detective down a long hall, covered in pictures and awards, to an office in the corner. The detective walked around and sat behind a desk that was covered in folders, papers, and a half-eaten sandwich. He took out a small notebook and sat it on the table next to the keyboard and a pencil. Derek wondered why he didn't just type but assumed maybe it was protocol for them to write it down. First of all, Detective Parker started, I don't want you to be worried. This is just routine, and I need information to help me put a timeline together. So why don't you just start by stating your name for me, for the record. My name is Derek Sterling. Mr. Sterling, what is your relationship with Leslie? She is my wife. How long, Mr. Sterling, have you known Leslie? You can call me Derek, and I have known her for about eight years, but we have been together for seven. And what do you mean by been together? 
We started dating in high school. We moved in together after we graduated, and we got married two years ago. Do the two of you have any children, Derek? Yes, we do. Patrick is five, and Tyler is 18 months. Where were you yesterday, Derek? I took my two boys to West Bend to visit my parents. It is about a three-hour drive. We left at about nine in the morning and didn't get back until about 11 at night. We went to the new monster movie before we came home. Did Leslie go with you? No, she didn't. She wasn't feeling well that day and decided to stay home the night before. She said that she had a headache and was also sick to her stomach. My parents were expecting us and hadn't seen the boys for a few weeks, so we decided to go anyway. When you arrived at your home, what happened? Both of the boys were asleep, so I carried Tyler in first and put him in his crib. Then I carried in Patrick and also put him to bed. I could hear the water running in the bathtub, so I went upstairs. He swallowed and found Leslie in the bathtub upside down. I called to her, but she didn't answer. I grabbed my cell phone out of my pocket and dialed 911. I lifted her head up, but her lips were blue, and I knew that she was gone. I closed the door and went downstairs to wait. When the officers arrived, the baby started to cry, so I went up and got him and took him back to Patrick's room, where we waited the rest of the night. My parents arrived around four, and I waited for a little while, and then I came here. It is still kind of a blur, kind of surreal, so I don't know if I helped you or not. So when you arrived at home, Leslie was face down in the tub, and the water was still running, is that correct? Yes, it is. You said that Leslie was complaining of not feeling well. Had this been going on for a long time? No, just the night before she got sick, and then that day, I guess. Does she get sick often? No, every once in a while she will get a headache, but I wouldn't say often. Had she been to see a doctor recently? Not that I know of. I know she went in for her woman's appointment probably a couple of months ago, but that is the last that I knew of. Is there anything else you can think of that might be important to the case? No, not right now. Really, I just don't know anything. I wasn't home, and then when I came home, she was already gone. Thank you, Derek. I am truly sorry for your loss. Please let me know if there is anything I can do for you or your family, he said with obvious sympathy in his eyes. I may have more questions for you later, but that will be all for now. Charlie stood up and offered his hand to Derek. Derek took it and shook. Charlie thought that Derek had a weak handshake and then assumed maybe it was because of the stress of the day. Charlie walked around the desk and led Derek out of the office. On the other end of town, Linda Short was busy at work. She was the medical examiner for the entire county and was standing above her next assignment, determining the cause of death for a supposed drowning victim that had been brought in the night before. Linda had a different perspective on things than most people who were looking at the cause of death. Because she was able to look at the inside of the body and never have to work a crime scene or talk to a family member, she had the ability to just think of it as a case and try really hard not to think of who the victim might be. It became more of a mystery to her. Rather than looking at it like a person, she had to look at it like a puzzle and how she could put the pieces together. Cases usually came to Linda when the death of the individual was sudden and unexpected. The state didn't require that she do an autopsy on a person if they had an expected reason of death, such as a long-term cancer victim. They did require that any case that wasn't expected and planned be investigated by her. She completed every autopsy in her county, but luckily it was a small county and she didn't keep too busy. Most deaths were usually expected, not too many unexplained causes. 
Linda liked the slower pace of her life here, and she really enjoyed being able to spend the necessary time on each person to really be able to identify what happened in the hours leading up to their death. Sometimes the news that she gave would be of great comfort to the victims' families and friends, sometimes not. She also got to help out the local police department a lot by either closing cases for them that they didn't really have to work, or giving them clues in a direction that they should look into. She really liked being able to know the information before anyone else and know that they depended on her to be able to get that information. She turned on the CD player in the sterile exam room and turned up the volume on her favorite jewel CD. She slowly washed her hands in the sink following the three-step direction required by the state. She pulled a small pair of latex gloves from a box above the sink and pulled them onto her hands. Now she was ready to start work. She went back over to the metal table that held the body she was about to examine. She slowly unzipped the black body bag and was surprised as she pulled back the flaps to see such a young, beautiful girl. She knew that this was going to be an interesting case based only on the age of the victim. Linda liked to wait to look at the chart of the victims until after she completed the autopsy. She wanted to make sure that she wouldn't go in with any preconceived notions. She continued unzipping the bag and called to Jake, her assistant, who was in the lab room next door to come and assist her. He quickly responded. Working in such a slow lab often left Jake looking for things to occupy his time, so any chance to help on a case, he would jump on it. They started by conducting an x-ray of the body while it was still in the bag, just in case some evidence would show up that they would miss during their initial investigation and that they would later find in the body bag. After completing the x-ray, they moved her out of the black bag and onto another solid metal table with wheels that she would use to complete more of the work ahead of her. Linda started by looking for any forensic evidence that she would need to save for the detectives. Removing the plastic bags that had been placed over the hands, she then cleaned out from underneath each of her fingernails and placed the evidence into a bag which she sealed and signed. She also took sample clippings of the fingernails just in case she missed something. She then moved to any visible fibers, but due to the water that had been on the body, anything useful had been washed away, and she didn't find anything to save. She pulled a piece of hair from the victim's head and also placed it in an evidence bag. It was routine for Linda to do this, just in case they needed any of this evidence, but unfortunately, it probably wouldn't ever come in handy. It was too difficult and expensive to process any of the evidence that she removed, and it usually didn't happen. But just in case they needed it for later comparison, she didn't want any errors to fall on her. She grabbed a fingerprint processing kit from the drawer. Because it was such a small county, Linda didn't have the fancy light processors that would take fingerprints and put them directly into a computer. Instead, she had to use the ink and paper fingerprint processing system. She rolled fingerprints from each finger on both hands onto an identification card and placed it on the table. Even though her hands were visibly marked with water, the fingerprint still was accessible and visible on top because she hadn't been in the water long enough. She also took a swab from the cheek of her mouth and placed it into evidence. Using a small light, she looked into the mouth looking for any evidence that may have been left inside, but didn't see anything. The mouth of this victim was very well taken care of and had been recently flossed. Jake was continuing to assist her and finished putting the body bag into evidence as well as the bags from the victim's hands which they always kept, just in case. Linda double-checked the entire body to see if she had missed any forensic evidence. Not finding anything, she moved on. With her assistant, they again moved the body to another stable table where they started by cleaning the body. Even though this victim had come in straight from the bathtub, it is still protocol to clean the body. 
removing any foreign objects that may cause a discrepancy with the autopsy. Linda ran water all across the victim's body, making sure to clean any area especially well that she would be opening for examination. Jake laughed at Linda as she sang along to Jewel at the top of her lungs. Linda looked at her clipboard and started to make some notations on the victim. The autopsy table also acts as a scale by the push of a button, and Linda noted that the victim was 120 pounds. She was white, female with brown hair. She measured from her head to the big toe on her right foot to identify that she was 5 feet 4 inches tall. She looked at the body for any tattoos or scars documenting the scar on her knee that appeared to be from surgery. She approximated her age to be between 23 and 27. Using a syringe, she removed blood from the body and filled a small clear plastic bag marked with a hazardous waste symbol for disposal. She told Jake to take the sample and test it for any chemicals or toxins in the blood. Jake quickly left the room and Linda continued with her examination. She took a temperature of the body and also documented it on her sheet. She looked closely at each piece of the body to see if there were any bruises or signs of a struggle but found none. She looked specifically around the head, face, and neck, going on past experience of death by blunt force trauma, and that is usually where any signs of injury would be. There was a small bruise on her right shin, she noticed, which she documented. The bruise appeared to be a couple of days old and unrelated to the death. She then prepared to do the internal autopsy. She started by making a large, V-shaped cut on the chest of the victim. She had to examine the internal organs. An autopsy was not a pretty thing, and even though she did it for a living, Linda knew that it wasn't a very glamorous job. She also knew that someone had to speak for the victim, and that she was really good at it. Linda looked at each organ individually within the cut that she had made and determined them all to be in healthy and working order, documenting on paper and on voice recorder the findings of each organ. The only organ that showed any discrepancies were the lungs, which she found to have fluid in them. She assumed it was water, but took a sample to test, just to be sure. She looked at the contents of the stomach and didn't find anything out of the ordinary either. Apparently the victim had soup and bread for dinner. She found a foamy substance in the throat, which she also documented, and took samples. She used a large cotton swab and rubbed it along the foamy substance. She closed it up into the plastic top and then sealed it into a plastic bag marked evidence. Linda took pictures and finished her documentation before putting the body back together. She had to put most of the organs back into the body and stitch up the incision. She then moved toward the top of the head. She looked at the brain by making the appropriate cuts and removing it from the body to place it on a metal pan for examination. Pictures were also taken of the brain that too appeared to be in working order. She could not find any discrepancies here, although she didn't expect to find any because the x-ray had not shown any either. After finishing the autopsy and making sure that the victim was put back together and it looked professional, Linda stood up straight and stretched her neck. She called Jake back in so they could move her onto the storing tray and put her into the refrigerator. She tied a tag identifying the victim by name and number that she took from the chart she had been given onto the big toe of her left foot, noticing the bright red nail polish that had recently been applied. She closed the door on the victim and took off her gloves. She sat at a table in the corner of the room and documented that Leslie Sterling had died of drowning under undetermined circumstances. She sat for about five minutes thinking back to the autopsy to make sure that she hadn't made a mistake or missed something, but ended up closing the folder on the autopsy certain she had done everything that she could. She hated having to put undetermined, even though sometimes she had to. She liked the other categories better, homicide, suicide, accidental, or natural. 
but she hated undetermined. Linda always thought when she had to report undetermined that she hadn't done her job well and that she had somehow missed something. She knew, though, as a medical examiner, oftentimes you get a piece of the story, but you never get the entire thing. You can never answer the why behind the way things happen. You just try to answer the what. While hoping with information from detectives or family, you will always get the how. Tune in next time as we continue 21 Steps. 